Today on The Black Goat, we talk about going to conferences, how do you get the most out of them, and a letter about getting familiar with the literature for your first research project. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullet, as always, and... The two of you are looking a little more clear and a little less clear to me. I was just today. thinking that your eyes look particularly healthy today, Sanjay. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, one of them, one of them, in fact, does. So, uh, yeah, I had. Uh, uh, I I feel like this is this is going to become the uh, Sanjay, Samin, and Alexa complain about their medical conditions hour. But because um, <laughs> la- last time we did, can we actually have an update on your shins before I get into my eyes? How yeah, are your shins doing, Alexa? my shins are doing pretty good. Um, I got the staples out. Um, they're healing as I guess as could be expected. I got some advice from the um, the doctor about uh, how to prevent scarring, which was basically to wear pants for two years. Um, Holy shit! <laughs> I'm sort of exaggerating, but she was like, "Keep it protected from the sun for like you know the next year, year and a half." Don't I was you like, want scars? I was like, "Never mind." Yeah, <laughs> yeah because I want parkour scars. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I uh, um, you guys know that Liz Dunn. Our our listeners might know Liz Dunn. She's a social psychologist. I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. I think a lot of people in the field know this. Liz was bitten by a shark once Whoa. while she was surfing. And she has like a badass scar on her leg. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, a friend of mine was saying once, he's like, if I had that scar, I would wear shorts for the rest of yeah, my right. life. Because I'd just yeah. be like, look at my fucking leg. I got bit by a tiger shark. You know? uh-huh. So so I think you should do the same thing, Alexa. Okay. I don't think my scars will be as impressive, actually. <laughs> Come on, um. you could be like, parkour scars. <laughs> it's kind of badass. Uh. Maybe I could get like tattoos around them or something um, to make them look more badass. You could have like tattoos of little parkour people like doing, <laughs> doing parkour tricks off of your scars. <laughs> yeah, like I, have, I could have a little goat jumping over each one. <laughs> uh, that's I like that. Yeah, so I, uh, I I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast, but I, I, I have I was diagnosed with early like super early cataracts and mm-hmm. and so like. So I had to um, I had to get them dealt with because they're interfering with my vision, and like the first thing I'll say is you can tell that cataracts are like typically for older people because you go to the doctor's office and they give you this questionnaire about how they're affecting you and it's things like, are you having trouble playing bingo? <laughs> <laughs> like I don't I don't know I don't play bingo like it. anyway but um. Yeah, so so there's like these different. So basically, what they do is they they put like a lens implant in you. Um, they replace the the natural lens in your eye with an implant. But there's these different options, and I like you'd think I would know better from having been involved in like science reform. But I I thought, oh great, I'm gonna go look up like the clinical trials where they compare these different options because you can choose from these different kinds of implants. And I go look, and it's like these tiny little studies, and they're not really randomized trials. They're like pre-post, like, well, we gave people these implants, and, you know, some of them said they liked them. And, you know, <laughs> like, so it was really, like, there was, you know, it was mostly, like, my doctor's personal experience with the different kinds of implants, which, you know, as a, as a like, critically-minded, you know, red palm meal psychologist, I'm like, I don't 
trust him. Like I, I trust his good faith, but I don't actually trust clinical judgment on anything. Um, so it was kind of a weird experience. Um, so I've got, but right now I've got one eye done because they spread them out. Um, they don't do both eyes at the same time. So I've got like one eye, they've replaced the, you know, they've done the implant. And so I'm like walking around. And so I've got like my old eye, which is like the focusing is okay, but it's got this cataract. And then I've got like my new implant, which uh, can kind of focus, but I'm also having like these weird night vision issues. And anyway, so it's really, it's weird walking through the world with two eyes that function very differently. And I'm looking forward to getting them matched uh, at some point. You should have gotten them to do one type of implant in one eye and (laughs) one type in the other eye and not told you which one was which. (laughs) <laughs> it's like so controlled. It's another, another meaning of double blind. <laughs> with, with, yeah. <laughs> a within it's subject randomized blind. design. Yeah, blind. yeah. No, that's. I might end up with two different types because my. Uh, um, it's funny, like being a psychologist and going through. So one, knowing about evidence, but then two, like knowing. A, I mean, I'm not a perception person, but like knowing a little bit about perception because they're talking about like neuroadaptation. How like when they put these implants in it changes kind of how the light hits your retina and and some people adapt to it but it takes a while some people don't and so um just knowing knowing about this stuff and sort of watching it happen to yourself is kind of weird i don't know i I feel like vision scientists must have a real heck of a good time when they get cataract surgery done (laughs) just watch all this shit happening Mm -hmm. when do you get the other one done so, so I, because my first eye, like, I'm trying to figure out how it's going to adapt. So originally I was supposed to have it done two weeks after the first eye, but I ended up delaying it because the, the first eye that I got done is having some weird anomalies right now. Um, and we want to see if I adapt to them, then I'll get the same kind of lens in the other eye. And if I don't, I'll get a different kind. When so they it do, might, It's going to be about a month, I think. When they do cataract surgery, can they also improve your vision well okay like aside from the cataract removal yeah yeah so this is so i've i've i'm like incredibly nearsighted um for my whole life and the implant lens is a corrective lens so it um so they have to they have to sort of like take these like really precise measurements of your eye and sort of guess what kind of lens to put in um or guesstimate or whatever and so they can miss by a little bit but if they hit the target you have corrected distance vision 2020 um, so that's like an upside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I, saw, I came across some stuff online where like some people are talking about instead of like LASIK or these other things, like maybe just do cataract implants when people want their vision corrected because um, mm-hmm. they're going to need them someday anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's also I have to say it's super weird getting your eye operated on while you're awake. Oh, um, God. No, I know. I know. I was freaked terrible. Out by it. Why would they do that? <laughs> they, I mean, so I, they numb the heck out of it so that yeah. I didn't feel a damn no, thing. No, no. Um, and I know, I know, but it's like, it's weird because you're just lying there and they like prop your eye open and you can't tell what's going on, but you just get these, it was, I've never done LSD, but like the way people <laughs> describe seeing like blobs moving uh, and like no. colors and everything, I was like, I was like, I, I, I feel like this is what people who are high on LSD feel like, you know, or what they see, because everything just started yeah. looking oh. really weird. Oh, God, I can't <laughs> believe they, oh, my God. So, I mean, your reaction just now was how I felt when Alexa was describing her parkour incident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> anyway, is I the feel goal like... to, like, 
drive away most of our listeners during the chit chat. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I feel like Samin, you're gonna have to come up with some like harsh medical thing the next yeah. time we record just to like balance it out. All right, we should probably move on because I, I think I've just grossed all of our listeners out. Um, okay, so should we do our letter? Yeah, let's do our letter. Okay. Um, Hi, all. What advice can you give for somebody trying to grow familiarity with psych literature? I don't expect to become broadly versed in the whole field in my undergrad years, but I would like to find ways to keep up with things as they happen. Additionally, I'm in a lab on campus and will have to complete a senior project as a graduation requirement, but I find it hard to know how to go about searching the literature for information or experiments that are relevant to those projects. Any tips for entering into this field? and better remembering what studies I have read would be greatly appreciated. Best, anonymous. So I like the part about remembering what studies you have read, because I remember in grad school having this experience of like, around my third or fourth year, someone would mention some study and I'd be like, oh, I should go read that. And and then like going and looking it up and, and having this like vague sense of familiarity and figuring out that I had been assigned it and supposedly read it for my first year seminar and just had no fucking idea. Like I read, you know, in our first year seminars, we, re- we had so many readings that it just like and I, I had no context for absorbing the readings and I didn't know who these people were. And and so like I didn't have any of this background knowledge to like absorb it into. Um, and so I had no idea I had read all this stuff. And, and when I would go back and reread, I wouldn't remember most of it. And I think, like, I mean, some of that is just, like, my shitty memory. But, you know, there is this thing where, like, you, once you know some stuff, you start connecting the new stuff you're learning into the stuff you know, right? Like, you know the people or you know, like, oh, there's this, there's these two camps and this is from the one camp and not the other. Or, you know, like, oh, there's this series of studies and this is where it fits in the sequence. And I think when you're starting out, you don't have that background knowledge right yeah. and so everything's really just hard. like this this like island in the middle of an ocean and you don't see the archipelago or whatever uh, uh, is that a mm-hmm. that, that's kind of a weird metaphor anyway um <laughs> yeah so so and i think it's hard for those of us who've been around a long time because we can't unlearn what we've learned and to to sort of remember that experience of like just everything being kind of like an isolated piece of information and not being able to connect it to anything else mm-hmm yeah, I, I mean, yeah, as soon as I'm trying to, like, uh, learn about anything that's sort of a little bit outside of my area, I find it really hard. And I liked this question, too, because um, I used to give undergraduate students um, advice for how to, like, look up um, the sort of key papers in a, in a literature. So, like, when students are writing papers for classes or if a student's doing a lit search um, in my lab in some capacity... And I realized that, like, I need to figure out how to update these heuristics because I used to tell them, like, okay, uh, you know, go on to some online, like, Google Scholar or something like that. And it's good if you have some guidance about, like, some of the keywords to look for, and usually I could help them with that step. Um, But then I would tell them, like, you know, look for these kinds of journals and, you know, look for things that are cited a lot and stuff like that. Um, And I don't think I would give that same advice now. Or I might give that advice um, to get a sense of the sort of shape and direction of the literature, um, but then also give the advice of, like, looking for more, you know, contemporary work and maybe maybe newer heuristics, like looking for badges on work and things like that. Um, So, yeah, I don't really have, like, a 
a well thought out revised strategy um, for coming up with uh, an awareness of the contemporary literature on something. Um, I thought about this a little bit when I was um, thinking about structuring my graduate social class this past semester, um, because I restructured it a little bit to have for each topic that we covered, we did, we read like a sort of a classic article, and then something that was done like very recently with like, you know, um, meeting our more like contemporary standards of good research practice and stuff like that. Um, and it's two very different like sets of criteria for looking for these kinds of articles. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I think it's hard with undergrads because I think if they want to know if an effect is real or what's the best estimate of the real effect, I would give right. them very different advice than if they are writing a paper for their, you know, mainstream class with a professor who's not particularly doesn't share the same standards or values or whatever as I do, then I would give them very different like what they're expected to do in their classes is not the same as what I would say to do to to find out the best evidence about a topic. Right. And it, and both are important to know, right? It's important to know not just what's the best evidence mm -hmm. and what conclusion should you draw from the literature, but also what conclusion does the mainstream field draw from this literature and what, what right. they cite as the references to support that conclusion. Because mm -hmm. um, it, oh, you're you're going to be expected to talk about that stuff whether regardless of what you think of it, right? Like yeah. people who read your work are going to be like, well, why aren't you citing so-and-so? Yeah, I mean, I think the the sort of like, and one piece of advice is, I guess I would give is if there are people you can talk to, so hopefully you're working, you know, for an advisor or you, there are other grad students in the lab or something who can kind of tell you like, these are the pieces, like sort of describe the landscape or tell you like, and, and you know, sometimes people aren't, don't do a great job of this. They just say, oh, go read so-and-so. But um if they can sort of say like, okay, here's like, here's the t the three major perspectives on this issue or whatever, and and we're this perspective, but if you want to understand the other one, read this. And sometimes people, especially people who are a little bit more caught up in their own egos, won't do that. They'll be like, oh, don't read so and so, he's trash. But like, if you're getting started, you need to to do that. So I think if you can, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's really valuable. For students getting started off rather than beginning with like if you want to study x but nobody in nobody around you is studying x maybe that's not a good place to start because you'll have nobody who can sort of like tell you like well what have people tried before and what are you missing and mm -hmm. what's the jargon and keywords and mm -hmm. what's considered old hat and whatever um so yeah i think like people is really good if there are people who you know um, who, who can help you with that. And then a sort of a, a version of that that can be helpful to get started or something related is if there are good overview, like a review paper mm -hmm. or a chapter. Um, it you know, Chapters are kind of have this weird status nowadays. I feel like they're kind of becoming like people still write book chapters, but they, they, they're sort of evolving. And I'm not quite sure what a chapter is these days. But, you know, once upon a time, like... If you went and found a book called The Handbook of Umbrella Topic and then flip through and find the chapter, like the point of a, like a handbook chapter was to sort of give you the lay of the land for a domain. And there are still things like that out there, although there was this kind of like the, the term handbook started to become 
sort of degraded because I think publishers realized that handbook was a selling point, and so all of a sudden there were like handbooks of everything. Um, but that that's one way to, I think, sort of get the lay of the land if there's not a person who can tell you where to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in terms of like remembering what you read and stuff, one thing I did in grad school when I wrote a review paper was I made a bibliography and then I annotated it with like a few sentences for each paper and that helped me a lot I think that's like one of the few topics where I could probably tell you what the literature looked like at the time anyway Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually remember something about what I read yeah yeah um it's too bad that so I, I get the impression that neither of you use like software to help you organize like what you read and it's too bad we couldn't have a, more of a conversation about that because um i know that there is software out there that's supposed to like help with this kind of stuff right like mendeley is one right that organizes your the articles and like gives you recommendations and then also you can like take notes on things and organize that um so i don't know like these things sound like they could be really useful but i don't actually know if they are <laughs> Our <laughs> they probably are. tell us on twitter yeah, yeah. Right. I I was talking to one of my graduate students the other day who uses Mendeley and I think he Mendeley got acquired by Elsevier and Elsevier has done taken some steps that have made it kind of you know made some people nervous mm-hmm. but he has all of his notes in Mendeley um, and so that you know and he he's found that very useful um, I think Zotero is a open source software that's similar I I kind of. I used Zotero recently just to organize references for a paper, so I haven't started using it in a, in a grander way to like organize all my references or take notes. But I think I bl- I'm pretty sure Zotero has the capacity for you to like keep notes and annotations. Um, for me, you know, this is this is not something that's going to necessarily work for like someone starting out. But like a lot of times, if I have notes on an article, it's because I've assigned it in a class, and so I can go look up my teaching notes from yeah, when we right. discussed it that day um so if i if i have to find notes that's how I, I do, do it. but yeah the other way i remember bit. things is by having a lab and so mm-hmm. i can just post in slack hey what was that article we read that talked about <laughs> blah 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 mm-hmm. and you know i sort of crowdsource it i uh print out the papers i assign to my class my seminars and then i keep them so i have like the hard copies that i wrote my handwritten notes on and i thought for sure i would lose them and not reuse them but i actually have reused them now like four or five times so my my replicability syllabus um i keep assigning the same papers some of the same papers over and over and so now i have my version with my handwritten notes that's the only thing that works for me i can't type up notes like that doesn't work for me at all Alexa, what do you do? Um, I don't have uh, much of a system anymore. Um, if I'm like writing a paper, then sometimes I'll try to like do a shittier version of what Samin described, like a sort of um, less thorough version of a an annotated bibliography or something like that. I also, like you say, I do have like, I take notes on my computer, um, but about the Uh, articles that I talk about in class. So most of the articles that I assign, there are some um, notes that I have about those. Um, Yeah, but in general, like, I just don't have a good system anymore. Um, It's like, you know, there's like some, usually if I know an article exists, there's some way for me to get to it eventually, but I think probably just like a lot of stuff falls through the cracks. Yeah, I guess 
I don't, I'm not convinced of the utility of having a system to organize things. Cause yeah, I can Google search a paper and find it in less than a minute. And then if I, even if I did have written notes about it, my notes wouldn't make any sense to me. Like I have this problem with teaching and everything else. So like I basically have to reread things from scratch almost every time. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, I don't think there's a system that would give me, save me much time. It is kind of funny when like, Every once in a while, yeah, I'll have something. I tend not to keep hard copy of things, um, but uh, you know, some things I do have an old hard copy or like a book or something, and I'll see like an annotation in the margin, and I'll look at it. I mean, annotations I'm a little more likely to understand than just like standalone mm-hmm. notes. But even sometimes I'll look at an annotation, and I'll be like, hmm, what was I thinking when yeah. I wrote that? Mm-hmm. Like it, it totally made sense to me at the time, yeah. and I think that's you know to some extent like. Sometimes I, I think a lot of times that's fine because a big part of the purpose of doing annotations is just at the time right. to like help you process it. Right. Like that's why I, you know, when I w- was a student, I would take notes in class, and even now I go to a talk and I, I take notes, and I almost never look at my notes, but the act of taking notes yeah. helps me sort of process it in the moment. Um, but it is kind of funny, like notes for your future self have are yeah. like a very different modality. Well, some mm-hmm. people were saying in response, I think, to your thread on Twitter about reviewing. Some people were saying they read the paper one day and then they write their review the next day. Oh, my gosh. My insane. notes do not make sense to me if I wait more than an hour. Like <laughs> yeah. if I'm reading a paper and I make notes and then before I write my review or my decision letter, I cannot take more than a half hour break. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is yeah. this is why this is this is how I end up writing. Like I, I feel like authors people that I review probably hate me because I end up writing, I write really long reviews. And the reason is that as I'm reading it, I'll start to sort of write a first draft. As I get to something, I'll write a first draft of like uh, a response to to an issue or whatever, because yeah, I can't, if I just like make notes, I won't, uh, I won't be able to like reconstruct them later. So I'll just, when I get to like, the the you know the thing in the method section where they didn't say the thing and I'll just sort of like write that in there like start to write a first draft of it and so I end up with these like and then I I end up with like two pages or three pages of review and then it's like okay well do I delete this shit like mm-hmm. you know um, so but yeah it's because I I wouldn't be able to like put together a holistic memory and then write a review from Mm -hmm. that I have to write it as I'm reading it like Mm -hmm. my you know I by the time I get to the end of the article I don't remember the beginning of it yeah that's that's even worse than me (laughs) (laughs) I can do I can do the holistic thing as long as I do it right after I read it uh yeah I mean I kind of do but like yeah yeah no I mean I make the notes as I go along and sometimes I do take stuff out because I'm like okay like this is they address it later or this is just in the grand scheme of things this popped into my head at the time but it wasn't that big um more reviewers should do that by the way (laughs) like go back and read your review and see if there's anything you can delete because yeah it's really not or or I'll just reorganize it and I'll say like here are some minor points like you know I try to do that a lot is like contextualize it say like this is what I care about this is just like a thing that popped in my head but don't make a big deal out of it Mm -hmm. anyway sorry we're getting away from the letter I hope the uh (laughs) So I have uh, one more very, very low level piece of advice, which is that I find like if you do get your if you're writing an undergraduate research paper or something like that and you do get your hands on some of the sort of like big review papers or, you know, like uh, often cited initial empirical work. I like really like in Google Scholar that you can look at cited by and you can organize by year. So you could look at like, you know, yeah, the articles within the last five years that have like cited that big article. I find that super useful. Um, yeah, that's 
You know, it would be really cool. Most people know that, but this is probably a pie in the in the sky idea that doesn't actually work. But this just sort of occurred to me: if Google Scholar had a thing where it could do like instant citation networks, so you type in keywords, and rather than giving you a list ordered by their algorithm of like what's relevant or whatever, if it could give you like uh, you know like a a network of like here are all the articles with this keyword because then you know you could see like if there's two camps you'd see like there's two clusters in the network that are all internally citing each other or whatever mm. this probably wouldn't actually work in practice um but it just sort of popped into my head as like that would be kind of a cool thing mm-hmm. yeah that is a cool idea yeah mm-hmm. anyway all right do you guys have anything else for our letter writer or should we move on i think that's all i got okay yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Anonymous, mm-hmm. for your letter. And if you are listening and you have a letter for us, something you'd like us to read and respond to, uh, or if you just want to give us any kind of feedback at all, you can email us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. That's our email address. Um, we are on Twitter at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod. And uh, if you have an opportunity, if you enjoy listening to us and want to go rate us on iTunes, that's one way that people find us um, is, is through iTunes. Um, we're also now on Stitcher and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're all over the Internet. So uh, thank you, everybody that does that. So for our, for our main topic today, we, we previously we talked about conferences at a sort of like should they exist, how should they work kind of level. And today we wanted to talk more in more concrete terms. This episode is actually coming out while a lot of people are going to be en route to a conference that the three of us have frequently gone to, SPSB, the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. And we thought it would be fun to talk about, like, as an attendee, um, attending conferences. And, and I know some people listening might be attending SPSP or might be upcoming attending their first conference or they might be early in their career, maybe some people who are further along but kind of want to hear like how do people get the most out of conferences, what are the things you should know about as an attendee, um, and so forth. So do you guys remember your first conference that you ever went to, what it was and what that experience was like? I think so, yeah. Um, do you want to go first, Samin? Sure. I uh, APA was in San Francisco right before I started grad school, the summer before. And I my my family lives near San Francisco. So I signed up to go, but I signed up to be a volunteer so that I wouldn't have to pay the really expensive registration. But they kept all the volunteers in a room to deploy us when they needed us. But they didn't need us, but we couldn't leave the room. Like, we literally had to get a pass to go to the bathroom. So my first conference, I spent, like, the first two days sitting in a room doing nothing and not allowed to go to talks. So I think on, like, the second or third day, I asked to go to the bathroom, and then I, I like, ditched volunteering at APA so that I could go to talks. That was my first well, conference funny. experience. I I always get these – maybe you guys can um... – can tell me what the right answer is. So I'm not sure whether my first conference was, it was SPSP, so the conference that's coming up, but it was either in Albuquerque or in Tampa, um, whichever one came first. I think it was in Tampa. Um, And I just remember, like, whichever one it was, um, this was probably two for both of them because they were my first and second conferences probably. Um, I just remember thinking, like, why do people like this? Except that there was a pirate festival in um, in Tampa, which oh. I guess was kind of fun. 
Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, I think we'll talk about this during the episode, but my experience at conferences has changed a lot um, since the first conference that I went to. Like, I think I was just overwhelmed. And also I didn't have as much experience as I do now with just traveling. So just like finding places to like, fun stuff to do or places to eat that are good or like things like that, even all of that stuff was overwhelming and I didn't know what I was doing and stuff. Um, so yeah, now I have a lot more fun at conferences than I did when I first started going in the beginning of grad school. I feel like my fun at conferences like went up over time and then started going down recently. <laughs> it peaked like a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think my first conference was also APA in San Francisco because it was there a couple times while I was yeah. in grad school. And it's, it's funny to think like, I haven't been to an APA conference in forever, um, but this was before SPSP existed. This was where kind of, uh, you know, there were a few of these sort of like subfield conferences around at that point, but it was still like everybody went to APA or APS or both. Like if you were a sort of researcher or academic researcher, you went to those and those were kind of the, the things you went to and, and now things have really splintered. Um, but yeah, I remember walking around this like the Moscone Center in San Francisco, this giant place and just feeling completely overwhelmed. And, you know, thankfully, because I went to grad school at Berkeley, it was like everybody was there. Like there were a ton of people I knew mm-hmm. from grad school there. But even still, like you just sort of get lost and you don't know where things are. And there's all these strangers and, and it was kind of a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird to go to a conference when you don't know very many people there. I've done that a few times and it's just like, I mean, I... Yeah, maybe I'm more sensitive to this than the average person, but just like standing around alone at a conference feels, it just feels awkward. Like I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah. I remember my first APS conference was when me and some friends um, got to do a student led symposium and we needed someone more senior to be our discussant. And Sanjay did it. And I don't know if you remember this. Um, and we like I think so one of the people in the symposium was a huge kiss up and so like he was like we should take Sanjay to lunch and we should do this for Sanjay and he'd like want to take a picture with Sanjay and like and I was just like what the hell is going on like is this how we're supposed to treat our elders like did I miss the memo like what the like it was just so mm-hmm. statusy and not because of Sanjay but because of this other person who was treating Sanjay like a god um so that was well really- it was it was super weird too I definitely remember that because um like there was somebody else that was supposed to do it and they had to cancel or yeah. something. And I was like a postdoc. Yeah. So, so it was like, and I knew you, Samin, already a little bit, I think. I um, think a little, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, we had met when you were in, inter- cause we had, right, right. like, I was a grad student when you were interviewing for grad school, et cetera. Right. But like, yeah, I remember just like, and I, it was like, I think it was kind of last minute maybe that I got subbed in. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know. And I was supposed to be like a discussant and right. I didn't really know the topic area. And it was, it was, it, that was a weird experience. It was so strange. I also <laughs> didn't have enough money to um, register or get a hotel at the conference. So I flew in and out the same day. And they had told us that part of getting to do the student-led symposium, like it was this like honor and that they would pay our registration. And then later they were like, oh, never mind. Actually, you have to register. I don't know if they just forgot to compass, but there were all these things. I was just like, it was, yeah. Conferences in the beginning were so stressful for, I mean, yeah, there's the financial aspect of it. There's, yeah, like not knowing how you're supposed to treat the more senior people. So how, I mean, how do you, like these issues of like yeah when you're starting out you don't know anybody 
um, especially early. I mean, nowadays, like maybe you go to a conference and it's a different field, so you don't know anybody. But it's probably a different experience now, at, you know, at your career stage. But like, how how did you guys? How how did that evolution happen for you? Going from those like awkward, I don't know anybody feelings to feeling a little bit more at ease at conferences? Like, how did you start meeting people and, and feeling more sort of connected? That's a good question. Yeah. I, think I mean, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, for me, um, at first, I would spend a lot of time with the people who were in my lab when I was in graduate school. Um, and that was like, that was great. And then it's easier to meet other people as part of a group. Also, my um, advisor when I was in grad school, Mickey, introduced me to a lot of people. Um, so that was sort of like my network of people when I initially went to conferences. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I guess it just expands from there. I mean, it starts like, it's it starts as a challenge of like, how to find people to hang out with. And then it gets to the point where it's like, how do you and not have a dinner become something that involves 30 people, you know? Yeah. Um, I made friends with people I met at prospective student visits, and so those are some of the early people I would hang out with at conferences. Like, there's, yeah, some people that I met when we were both prospective students at a place that neither of us ended up going to, but we stayed friends. Um, for a lot of people, and to some extent for me, um, meeting people at the summer schools, the CISP summer yeah, school yeah. Mm -hmm. is a big one. Um, or like, I think if you're, if there's people who work on exactly the same topic as you, who are your peers, I've met people that way. Like you organize symposia mm -hmm. together and then you get to know each other that way. I think some people have like, uh, pre-conference networks. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard people say that like they go to the same pre-conference every year and so they get to know those people and it's usually a small group of people who are doing something that's similar to what you're interested in. I never, um went consistently to a pre-conference, so I don't know, but that seems like a good idea. Yeah, yeah. my advisor also was really um, encouraging of me to organize symposia, and even if they don't get accepted, you still like have contact with the three or four people that you asked for abstracts and things like that, and then you can usually chat with them briefly at the conference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think the, the sort of, you know, People hear a lot about like conferences are for networking, and I found that really scary and overwhelming because I thought networking mm -hmm. meant like I have to walk up to strangers and introduce myself. And I think what actually ended up happening was if I if I tried that, it went horribly. Yeah, because um, it's just not how it works. And yeah, these sort of organic ways of like people you already know, and even if it's just like your your grad school friends. Um, they, you know, someone in that group will know somebody and it kind of starts to build out. And, and yeah, the symposia is another way. Um, I feel like some conferences are getting so SPSP now is doing a lot, a lot of stuff that, you know, they have like a, a reception, like a diversity, specifically a diversity reception, which is amazing and a lot of fun where they um, they match people up uh, to more senior people. And, and I've gone to that as one of the more senior people. Um, and it's cool because you get to meet, like I enjoy the heck out of it because you get to meet people. It's, you know, it's a, a social environment. So like nowadays I would say if there are events like that, um, mentor lunches, you know, some things you have to sign up for in advance. But if you see anything on the schedule that's like, you know, specifically targeted towards, your, so if it's like 
you know, social hour, that's probably just going to be like, they're going to have a cash bar and it's going to be in a gigantic room. But if it's like specifically like a, uh, something that's that's targeted at first-time attendees or, or graduate students or things like that. A lot of conferences have those kinds of things, and they're often really good. If you were starting out at a conference, or if you're like, do you guys, I don't know if you guys ever go to conferences now that are like new for you outside you know, ones yeah. that you're not already connected to. But like, how do you how do you approach that kind of stuff? I went to one recently. I went to a philosophy conference a couple months ago, and it was very similar to like being a first or second year grad student, I would like find the few people I know and just be like really explicit, like, hey, I don't know anybody here. So I'm just going to be like sitting in my room. So like, don't be shy about like, if you want to hang out or if I can tag along, like, you know, I just, I would just be really blunt about that. Um, I was, I'm not very good at introducing myself to new people. So that's still hard. I try to do it a little bit, but it is, it's really, really hard. I feel like that's a lie. I feel like at every conference I go to with you, you like have an appointment to meet with a new person like three times a day. <laughs> well, that's different. I, I'm happy to talk to new people. I don't necessarily initiate it. Um, and hmm. I guess I think that it's very hard to know if the other person's just being polite or if they really want to talk to you. And I, I don't think that's just paranoia. I think it actually is the case that you're bugging the person half the time and half the time they're like mm-hmm. happy to talk to you but it's really hard mm-hmm. to tell mm-hmm. i just try to find a karaoke event to go to <laughs> i think also asking questions at talks which i know that sounds even more scary to some people than walking up to a stranger and introducing yourself but to me i'd rather ask a question at a talk and then that also like broadcasts to the people in the room like hey i'm interested in this topic so sometimes people will come find each other like if they ask similar questions or sometimes I've done that where like someone else has asked a question during a talk and I had the same question so afterwards I go up to them and I was like yeah I'm interested in that too and we'll chat um. mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think like talking to people after their talks can be like you know, often this is almost always what happens is like there's the talks hopefully there's a little bit of Q&A and then the session ends and there's like a break before the next session starts and people will come up and chit chat with the presenters um, and you know I sometimes I've been on both sides of this where sometimes like you just end up having an interesting conversation you're like hey are you doing anything right now you want to go get a coffee or something mm-hmm. um, I think like you don't want to try to force that or be be pushy but like that that can be an opportunity to, to have a conversation um, uh, and yeah, like if you've given a talk and someone's chatting with you and they seem interested in your work, that can be a good way to sort of follow up on it. Um, I think it's a little harder to do at posters because you're kind of anchored to your poster for a while. Um, but you could always, like if someone seems really interested, I guess you could say like, oh, hey, are you meeting, are you, you know, what are you doing after the poster session or something like that? So you can sort of look for those openings, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's good to... Do you guys ever email people in advance and say, hey, I saw you're going to be at this conference. Do you want to meet up? Yeah. Like people you don't already yeah. know. Yeah, so like with the Philosophy no. of Science conference, I looked at the program and the few people who were talking about like replicability stuff. If I had heard their names or read their mm-hmm. papers or stuff like that, I'm not, I don't remember if I actually did this, but it's the kind of 
thing I would do if I'm going to a conference where I don't know anybody. I'll look at the program, try to see people whose work is similar to mine, uh, whose work I've read, stuff like that. And then I might email them. But I think it's the same as with any other kind of social and or professional thing where you're asking something of somebody. Like, keep the ask small and make it really easy for them to say no. So don't start with, like, let's have a meal. Start with, like, hey, do you... Like, is there a time we could chat for a few minutes? Do you want to get a coffee or something like that? And also say, like, I know you're, this is your, f- like, in this this case, I would say, like, this is your field. So you probably have a million people to see. So it's totally fine if you don't have time or whatever. Um, so I think it's fine to do that out of the blue when there's a good reason. Like, you're not just, like, spamming all kinds of people who have nothing to do with you. And also if you make it easy for them to say no or and keep keep it a small ask. What do you guys do at conferences now? Sleep in. <laughs> uh, it sort of depends on the conference. So I feel like uh, like bigger conferences, I find some bigger conferences like overwhelming now. It's, mm-hmm. I kind of feel similar to what you were saying, Samin, before, where like I've had this kind of like peak and decline a little bit on my enjoyment of con- like really big ones. Sometimes there's so much stuff it's hard to go to anything, which is, you know, kind of weird. But um uh, yeah, I will try to go to sessions. I'm not like at a smaller conference. Like if it's if it's a smaller conference where everyone's go, where there's like one session at a time or maybe two sessions at a time. At those, I'll try to go to a lot of stuff because that's like your interaction with people and you're seeing people and you're sort of like one of the one of the cool things about those smaller conferences is like the way you get to know people is everyone's been at the same thing so you naturally have something to talk about um, whereas if you're at a giant conference you you run into somebody you you don't have that so it's not as as crucial um uh yeah like i'll try to i mean nowadays uh, um, i don't go to a lot of new conferences that aren't already either ones i've been to before or ones that are sort of branching out from when, ones i've been to before so i'll try to like do meals with people I, you know, people that I know, but I only ever see at conferences. Like for me now, conferences are really appealing as a way to like, you know, sort of incrementally expand. Like, oh, I meet a new person, or like, oh, this is this person that I see once a year at this conference, and I really enjoy spending time with them. So I'm going to try to to hook up with them at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would say yeah, I think the vast majority of my time is spent meeting with people that I only see at conferences um, and then a little bit meeting new people and then a, a little bit like actual formal meetings and then a tiny bit going to talks and for I mean kind of unfortunately but I have the same feeling as Andre like at, at smaller conferences with fewer parallel talks I get a lot more out of the talks but when you're it feels like you're shopping around and like half the people half the crowd is leaving between each 15 minute talk and all this I just I don't have the attention span and the focus and yeah I, um, yeah, I, I think I tend to make going to actual talks and stuff like that a low priority, but actually I usually, um, I'm happy when I do go. Um, I don't know. It's like one of those things where I am wrong about how much I'm going to enjoy it sometimes. Um, cause sometimes I can go to talks and just like feel like really excited if it's a really good symposium or something. Um, and you know people give really good talks and there's like really interesting new ideas um i sort of underestimate how much i can have fun at stuff like that when i do go um but of course it's hit or miss like sometimes i'll go to a symposium and um yeah i feel like i wasted however long a symposium is 
yeah. yeah, I definitely prioritize spending time with people who I don't see often. But I don't think, yeah, I think that's changed a lot, obviously, since graduate school. In graduate school, I spent a lot of time going to the actual talks and, um, yeah, I guess, like, trying to meet new people and stuff like that. I didn't have very many people who um, I knew but weren't, you know, also in the same grad program as me. I wonder how the world would be different. Like, we talk about this with publications of, like, what if people didn't publish just for the sake of publishing but, like, just published when they felt they had something really, really important it's the same with talks i feel like there's this kind of default knee-jerk like oh i guess i should submit a talk every once in a while Mm -hmm. i guess it's a good thing to keep doing and have on my cv but i would have so much more fun going to talks if people were like nah i don't have anything talk worthy this year and they only signed up for a talk when they felt like they had something really especially right burning that they wanted to share not necessarily the results but maybe the idea or the preliminary results or whatever I like data blitzes because they feel kind of like that. It's like, mm-hmm. if I only have three minutes, this is the thing I want to tell you. And I and it's often very preliminary. And I find that much more interesting because mm-hmm. then you can have a dialogue and give feedback and things like that. Mm-hmm. So shifting gears a little bit, I think, um, <clears throat> what, do you, what do you tell people starting off at conferences and, and how do you approach this yourself in terms of like, professional behavior etiquette so like how do you like if one of your grad students or undergrads asks you how they're supposed to dress what do you tell them (laughs) I have a funny like um, how do you tell them how to interact with people I have uh my one of my graduate students Alex um when he came to SIPS which was maybe the first conference he had been to um I think it was SIPS Uh, he asked me what he should wear and he asked me in a text if he should wear a blazer and I don't know how I miscommunicated to him but I what I meant was definitely not Um, but somehow what he got was like definitely not don't wear a blazer or something I can't remember the details (laughs) and anyways he showed up in a blazer and I was like what are you doing man Um, and it was like a pretty formal like he was almost like wearing a suit kind of thing Um, but uh, but yeah I don't know I'm not the person to ask about professional advice like I think my my students have better intuitions about Mm -hmm. professional advice than like what what I would like explicitly tell them I don't know what kinds of professional like advice for being a professional would you give people I would tailor my advice to the student a bit like some students worry to err too much on the side of being too professional and some students are too much on the side of being not professional enough so I have a hard time imagining what I would say without imagining a specific student uh-huh. Um, yeah. What do you tell students who are not professional enough? Like, what are the kinds of be more professional advice that you give? Um, I, I don't know specifically for a conference, but I think I would just generally tell them, like, it's better to err on the side, right? But this is not what I actually believe in general. But for people who are who tend to err on the side of being too informal, I would say it's better to err on the side of being more formal. And, like, you know, if you don't know someone at all and they're not your peer, maybe start off by not calling them by their first name. I don't know exactly what you should call them. Maybe wait for them to introduce themselves and then it's okay to call them by their first name or Mm -hmm. things like that. And like, also, yeah, like if you're going to talk to somebody, um, give them an out quickly. Don't like be pushy or assume that they have a lot of time to spend with you. Things like that. Um, try to, try to talk to a lot of your peers at conferences. Don't, don't try to mostly talk to more senior people. Like there's a lot you can get out of your peers. Things Mm -hmm. like that. Do you give your students advice about drinking? If they asked, I would, but I don't know if I ever have. 
Mm-hmm. What, what would you, you tell them if they asked? <laughs> I feel like I'm being grilled. Um, <laughs> I would say don't get drunk at a conference, probably. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's fine if they do. I won't judge them. But if they're asking what I recommend, like my advice, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, probably try to stay on this side of drunk and wait sorry so, I mean, um, which side of drunk are you <laughs> I know you sometimes do a whiskey shot before so I'm just trying to <laughs> clarify yeah I've, I mean I've, I've sometimes broken that advice for sure um, yeah I don't know I guess it depends the specific question about drinking mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think the I mean it's kind of a when we talked, when we talked, we've talked about like job interviews before, and said like, and it, this is so this is much less high stakes and a big of a deal than that, right? But you know, like the advice for job interviews is like when they take you out to dinner, you're still on the interview, right? And I think to some extent, there's still thematically something similar, which is like when you're at a conference, and it's Saturday night, and you're still with colleagues, you're still in a professional setting like even the conference is officially ended whatever and it's really hard because you know people do let their hair down Saturday night and mm-hmm. it depends who exactly you're with like are you just with peers like right. like if, on a Saturday yeah, if night with if your friends on a hotel room that's different then yeah. go wild do you know enjoy the new city or whatever or if you're at an event that's like explicitly like just purely a social mm-hmm. event um, uh, and like you can let yourself you know, relax a little bit more. But yeah, like, just keep in mind that, you you know, whatever you do is around people that are part of your profession. And even if everybody understands it's Saturday night, and we're all at a party that we all knowingly went to and whatever, like people are going to talk if you like, you know, Mm -hmm. take off all your clothes and dance on the table with a lampshade on your head, like that's going to be the talk of the conference next year. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that I've ever done that. But uh yeah. N- um, literally never, Sanjay? What is what are the odds of that? Um no lampshades. <laughs> I you know, I'm I'm more of a like, you know, curtain toga kind of guy than a lampshade on the head. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it is really there's a lot of gray area about like, you know, how big the crowd has to be, how close it is to the conference, to like an official conference event versus a purely social event and how what counts as embarrassing behavior, what's behavior that other people might think you should be embarrassed by, but actually there's no reason to be embarrassed by that behavior at Mm -hmm. all. All of that, you know, are complicated. All of those are complicated questions. Mm -hmm. Of course, also, I would say, of course, you don't have to drink. And I think it's important to tell people that, that like, I agree, even if everyone around you is drinking and all of that, it's like completely fine not to drink. And I would say Mm -hmm. on the flip side, like, don't pressure people to drink. Like if you're, you know, if you're a grad student or especially if you've got a little bit more stature and power, like don't, you know, like if you're, if you're at an event where people are drinking, that's fine. But like, don't be like, dude, I mean, I guess if you're, if you're the sort of person who's going to be like, dude, do a shot, then you, this advice probably won't help because you're a jerk anyway. But, uh, Hey, um, (laughs) (laughs) some people, no, never mind. Uh, with, with (laughs) strangers or with people that you don't know, that would be Uh, Alexa, you, if you said do do a shot to me, I would totally do a shot with you. But you know what I mean, like yeah, the, right. the broy kind of behavior. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that might be a good segue into like, um, like how 
what do you what should like how should people deal there's all kinds of misbehavior sometimes mild sometimes serious that can happen at conferences like mm-hmm. rude questioners um yeah you know i've been sort of senior like senior people jerks and that, all the way up to like harassment and that kind of thing like how do you that spectrum of misbehavior from like misdemeanors to felonies like yeah, how should people be thinking about that? Because it, it's going to happen, at least at the milder end of the scale, it's going to happen to everybody. At the serious end of the scale, it's going to happen, unfortunately, more often than we might like it to. Yeah. Like, this entire time that we've been talking about drinking, you know, I think I've been sort of putting Samin on the spot. And the whole time I've been sort of thinking, like, I want to say something like, it's okay if you get drunk as long as you don't do anything really dumb. <laughs> Which is, like, I mean, that's sort of the problem, right? And maybe, like, my advice, again, would, like, vary depending on the person and, uh, yeah, like, and um, what they would be like. I mean, I've had some... It depends a little bit on what you mean by being drunk. There's definitely a point at which I would say, like, just avoid that level um, entirely. But I've definitely had times at conferences where I've, like, gone out for a few drinks with... um, with like friends or new people and had like a really fun time and have really good memories of stuff like that and probably have been like maybe on the other side of the line <laughs> or the other side of the line that's yeah, in this yeah, picture. Of course. I mean, um, I, I, of course I have to. Yeah. But yeah, then, then it feels like very much um, tied in with all of these like discussions um, that have been happening recently about bad behavior at conferences and things like that. And I don't have... I don't have good answers for that kind of stuff. I mean, so Sanjay, it sounds like your question was a little bit more like, how would you, how do you deal with other people acting like assholes? I mean, I guess it's sort of, we take it as a given that you should not act like an asshole. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's the, you know, the issue of like alcohol and conferences is a much larger conversation. Right. And, And I feel like, like, I don't want to tell, and I, I would be a hypocrite if I, you know, like I go, I, have I used to organize parties after conferences and I still now like hang out with my friends and drink and that kind of thing and you mm-hmm. know it's like it's hard to give advice on that because I feel like the people that need the advice aren't the ones that are going to hear it or listen to it it's like if you're the sort of person that gets aggressive or <laughs> overly right. sexual when you've drank too much then don't fucking drink um, but it's like those people aren't you know it's like I mean maybe some people have enough self-awareness to know don't do that at conferences but I, I it feels weird giving advice on that because it's like oh you know like it, you know whereas if you're just like a happy drunk who has a good time and you're in the right company for that that's I guess you know like that's me that when I was younger that used to be me um but yeah I I more meant like if you're if you're on the receiving end so like you know let's say that somebody you're at a poster session and somebody comes up to you and they're like just trying to grill the hell out of you like in in a not in a like sort of good faith academic way but they're just kind of being a jerk like they don't like your advisor or they don't like your work or whatever I mean that's a tough one and I don't I don't think that happens very often I think people have these fears yeah. about I think people worry sessions. about it happening a lot yeah. more than it mm-hmm. actually happens mm-hmm. yeah um well my advice if someone grabs your ass out of the blue is to wait 16 years and then tell a sleep <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's yeah. Ex- yeah extremely concrete advice yeah, yeah. I mean I guess yeah I, I guess I what- mean actually my advice is that a lot of possible reactions are 
completely fine, including waiting 16 years to report it or to tell anybody yeah. about it or, or tell anybody official about it. But yeah, so like if if something happens to you that is not inappropriate, you can report it. Many conferences have a code of conduct and it specifies how to report bad behavior. You can talk to a trusted person who's not the official person you're supposed to report. You can talk to nobody if mm-hmm. you want to talk to nobody. Um, there's a lot of reactions. You can think about it for a while and decide later what you want to do. Um, yeah, I think it's really hard to say because different people want different outcomes and want, you know, mm-hmm. react differently. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like um, when codes of conduct are a relatively recent development in psychology conferences, um, you know, and some conferences have them, some don't. And I, I feel like it's going to be a few years before we get a sense of like the track record for how well they're actually carried out. Um, and, you know, I my hope is that if anything like this happens to someone and they were that that they'll feel they'll be able to feel comfortable reported reporting it and that it will be acted on you know in a in a meaningful way um you know i I think like the best case scenario maybe is where you feel comfortable doing that and you have the backing of somebody a trusted person who will sort of have your back if it doesn't go in a good way um Mm -hmm. but uh yeah that that seems that seems pretty important um and that's that's again that's a development like i mean codes of conduct weren't even around a few years ago certainly not when when you know the three of us were starting out yeah i think another thing that is maybe practical that is helpful to think about in advance is if you're if you observe something like that happen what what would you do and i think i've i have regrets about like seeing things nothing at the very high end of the scale but seeing things kind of in the middle of that scale from like rude questioner to really bad behavior and not knowing what to do in the moment and wishing I had stepped in and said something in the moment. Um, so I think like thinking ahead of time about what, what would you do if you saw someone like just make a slightly sexual remark to someone else when it looked unwanted or there was a big power difference and it was a professional, like I've seen it at, at a poster session where a, a, prof- a faculty member was talking to a graduate student. The graduate student was presenting their poster. They were in a very professional mm-hmm. role. And the faculty member was like making basically like sexual jokes. I w- wish I had said something. What would you say? I mean, sorry, I'm asking you like all of these very hard. I questions. think like even just giving a a look and being like, "What?" You know, like <laughs> say, like reacting like, "Did you really just say that?" Yeah. I think I would start with that maybe, and it also depends who it is and how well I know them. If it's someone I know pretty well, I think I would be like, "Dude, what did you just say?" Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know. I'd have to think more about like what else I would say, but maybe I'd start there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. that's so not so hard. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I would say. I'm not, I know that my inclination would be if I were to say something to like try to make light of it, but I don't think that's necessarily the right thing to do. Like I know that that's what I'd be tempted to do or like try to make like a sort of snarky, but still still a joke about it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's ways to make it like to make a comment a remark that's like kind of funny but also clear that you're like that's inappropriate. Mm-hmm. What do you guys wear? At conferences? Mm-hmm. Uh jeans and then either a t shirt if I'm not presenting or if I am presenting 
something like a button down shirt or a t-shirt with a blazer uh-huh. over it or yeah i typically wear same thing i kind of wear to work which is like a you know button shirt and you know usually at conferences usually not jeans although sometimes you know and it depends on the conference too um I mean, at, I was at ECP this last summer, and it's so fucking hot that it's just like, I, I think I brought way too warm of clothes because I'm like accustomed to Oregon weather, and I showed up, and it, uh, it's like on the Mediterranean, and it's blistering hot, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to wear like the least thing possible. I mean, not literally, because that would be <laughs> dancing on the table with the lampshade, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, no, I think at, at a more typical conference, it's sort of like kind of what I wear every day. I think um, depending on the conference and the location... I used to wear, I used to throw on like a sport coat if I was um, giving a talk or something like that. And I kind of enjoy like dressing up a little bit. And Eugene, Oregon is such a fucking casual place that I, and I actually enjoy the opportunity to dress up. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there are also like, there are a lot of things where people have to be thinking about their career stage and their, you know, gender and race, ethnicity and that kind of thing that sort of, they have to factor that in you know i'm at a stage where like yeah i could show up wearing anything and Mm -hmm. and you know get away with it um and i think you know when i was younger i would definitely like put more thought into sort of um you know dressing up a little bit for my day-to-day i mean what i would tell somebody if if i was just going to give generic advice for a conference where you don't know otherwise i would say business casual um you know that's a pretty safe description Mm -hmm. Although business casual means so many things to so many people. I have no idea what business casual means, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think for guys it means uh, like a shirt with buttons down the front and some kind of pants that aren't jeans. And -hmm. that would be like if you didn't know anything and and there weren't these other considerations of like, you know, you know, that, that you had to play against and you just wanted, like, a default, that would be a pretty good one mm-hmm. um, for men. Um, yeah, I'm – it's really – it's – women's clothing is so much more varied and the norms are – the norms change all the time. It's hard to – and I certainly don't fucking know. It's it's hard to give advice, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, have we uh, – is there anything else you guys can think of that uh, people should know going to conferences? I think another thing I tell people the first few times they go to conferences, it's fine if you don't get a lot out of it or meet a lot of new people or whatever. Like, it's completely fine to just go observe, get it under your belt. You know, next time you'll know a little bit better what you want to get out of it and so on. Like, it doesn't have to be the case that you come back with, like, five new contacts or three new ideas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that's a, I think that's a good point. Like, be if you if your expectations are too high, like, maybe, like some older graduate students or younger faculty or whatever you're going to talk to them and they're like oh this conference is great it's so much fun and you're going to go and you might be a little disappointed um and that that's okay like it'll build up to that it won't necessarily i feel like there's an analogy i'm trying to avoid making like the first time might be a little disappointing but it gets better (laughs) the more um, i'm just not gonna go there but uh Yeah. yeah Also, there's no shame in, like, finding yourself with, like, two or three hours and nothing to do and deciding to go back to your hotel room or to just wander around the city or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, you're not doing something wrong if you end up not completely packed with a packed schedule all the time or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, hopefully this will 
SPSP of interest to people. Yeah, if you're if you're listening to this on your way to SPSP, social and personality psychologists enjoy yourselves. And if you're just listening to this uh, for some other reason, uh, you know, hopefully this has been helpful to you. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. This has been the Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.